Welcome, podcast friends. We have a fantastic episode for you today. Last year, we published The Best Investment Writing, Volume 4. We offered authors the opportunity to record an audio version of their chapter to be released as a segment of the podcast, and listeners loved it. This year, we're once again bringing you the entire volume of The Best Investment Writing, Volume 5, in podcast format. You'll hear from some of the most respected money managers and investment researchers from all over the world. Enough from me. Let's get to our guest and let them take over this special episode. Duncan comes way outside for Wallace on him, and it puts it up off the glass. We're looking for that early now. What you want is every time that you get a switch or you get in a help situation, get the ball to Duncan early and let him operate in the clock. In the 2005 NBA Finals, the San Antonio Spurs defeated the Detroit Pistons four games to three. Spurs center Tim Duncan was named Finals MVP, averaging over 20 points and 14 rebounds per game. In the prime of his career, Tim Duncan was a prototypical back-to-the-basket big man, scoring over smaller defenders, out-rebounding them, or dishing the ball out to open teammates as defenses collapsed on him. Basketball is a possession efficiency game. Statistically speaking, a winning basketball team scores more points on average per possession than its opponent. For decades, the route to per-possession efficiency was having a dominant center. Prior to the 2005 NBA Finals, 75% of champions since the dawn of the league were led by a dominant big man holding the court down near the basket. The route to a championship was clear. Find a dominant center who played well with his back to the basket and controls rebounds, and your possession efficiency rises to a championship level. However, Since 2005, not a single NBA Finals MVP has been a traditional center. League MVPs have been smaller players located further from the basket, like Steph Curry, Steve Nash, Kobe Bryant, James Harden, and LeBron James. LeBron is not exactly small, but he doesn't play with his back to the basket very much. So what happened? The answer is a subtle but significant rule change. If you guess the institution of the three-point line, you're wrong. That happened in 1979. The change was a modification of a defensive rule called hand checking. Hand checking is where a defensive player puts his hand on an offensive player's body, whether or not they have the ball. This allowed larger and stronger players to channel smaller players and obstruct their movement around the court. The rule was changed in 2004 to disallow this tactic. The result was not immediate, but turned into a revolution smaller and more athletic players, now much freer in their movement around the court, could exploit their athleticism and skill. Scoring exploded, with average points per game up 19 points compared to before the handshaking rule was instituted. NBA basketball is now a perimeter game. The key to success is a squadron of perimeter shooters that can spread the floor, good passing around the perimeter, and long and quick defensive wings that can guard these guys. As for the traditional center, well, they still exist, but are far from the focus of the game. My name is Brian Barish. I am president and chief investment officer of Cambiar Investors. Our company has been in business for almost half a century. 
we manage equity strategies in the U.S., internationally and globally, up and down the capitalization spectrum. All our strategies employ a value philosophy to uncover opportunity, manage risk, and defend against the inevitable unknowns. This means we have a serious issue on our hands. It's certainly just a coincidence, but the success of value investing ebbed right around the same time as the era of NBA big men in 2006. Up to the year 2006, value investing superiority over growth and other styles was unchallenged, kind of like the embedded wisdom of building a basketball team around a dominant big man. The philosophy behind value investing is not dissimilar to that of building a basketball team around a dominant center. Value investors believe that the price paid for a stock is a major determinant in its potential upside, and that by buying stocks very cheaply in comparison to their intrinsic value, value investors embed a margin of safety relative to the price paid. Low downside, high upside. It's the investment equivalent of per-possession efficiency. For most of the 20th century, and even the first part of the 21st, value investing enjoyed a gold-plated philosophical and quantitative edge over other approaches to stock picking. Value worked better. But starting a bit before the 2008 financial crisis, value started not working so well. Through the crash of the financial system and the economy, value stocks underperformed noticeably. And since the stock market low in 2009, value indexes have continued to lag. In fact, it's been 14 years of steadily weaker returns than comparable growth indices. With the world economy thrown into deep recession and uncertainty due to the COVID-19 virus and great lockdown, value stocks entered the 100th percentile of valuation relative to growth stocks. They have simply never been cheaper, relatively speaking. The long, dark winter of value means that statistics like this don't scream of opportunity anymore to the financial press. They bring questions and sarcasm. Last fall, Forbes magazine ran a piece titled, Has Value Investing Stopped Working? While Institutional Investor ran a piece around the same time with a catchy title, Why Value Investing Sucks. In 2020, the world's most renowned value investor, Warren Buffett, has been lampooned for inaction in the depths of the coronavirus sell-off and deep losses on major portfolio positions. It's getting tough out there. I want to share with you my journey into this issue. It hasn't been easy, but after looking at a lot of the different forms of data from macroeconomic to accounting to specific industry structures and evolution, there are emerging and investable conclusions. I'm going to assume that a lot of people listening to this are generally familiar with the concepts behind value investing. In case you are not, let's do a 100-second crash course. Value investing means buying stocks at a significant discount to their intrinsic value. By doing this, value investors embed high potential upside to the purchase and a margin of safety to the downside. There is another big related concept called the fade rate. Eventually, companies that earn high profit margins attract competition, so these returns tend to fade over time to a long-term corporate average. In order to ensure margin of safety, it's important to avoid accidentally overestimating long-term profits. Value investors calculate intrinsic value with a DCF, or discounted cash flow analysis. To do this, 
You need to estimate future cash flows and the terminal value for the business and discount these back to the present to account for time value and risk. There is one huge problem with DCFs, which is that the variables are all forecasts about the future and, as Yogi Berra once famously said, forecasting is hard, especially about the future. It's important to have some humility about the fade rate concept also. Like a star athlete, eventually they become more average, but it's hard to predict exactly when this will happen. Because of these subjective factors, value investors over the years developed a variety of approximation methods to speed up the calculation and reduce subjectivity. In 1992, one particular speedy and practical technique was published by professors Eugene Fama and Ken French called the value factor. They concluded that over time, companies trading at below average price to book multiples outperform those trading at higher multiples, arguably because the higher multiple stocks embed more inflated profitability assumptions. Buying the less demandingly valued cohorts of the stock market steered investors away from this behavioral finance mistake. From the dawn of modern record keeping in 1960 until the year 2006, the Fama French low book to market value factor enjoyed a nearly 15 fold cumulative excess return that managed to encapsulate the vagaries of the DCF model and the corporate fade rate concept in one tidy package, one financial variable to rule them all. Their work was widely embraced and soon after a low price to book multiple became the primary factor by which value stock indexes were constructed. This means that trillions and trillions of dollars of indexed investments are linked every day to this one variable. Ironically, this all happened in the early 1990s, just a couple years before the birth of the modern internet and the PC revolution. This is a slide that I first saw a couple years ago. It really shook my foundations as an investor. Let me explain what you are looking at. It is a chart produced by a quantitative finance group at Sanford Bernstein. What it shows are the future ROEs of companies that are in the highest quintile of the overall stock market one, two, three, four, and five years after they first appear in the top quintile. As you can see, back in the 1990s, about half of the top quintile companies were still in the top quintile three years later, while after four or five years, 60 to 70% of top quintile companies were no longer in the top quintile. In other words, the fade concept was working very reliably. Now, squint a little at this chart and you will see that sometime in the mid-2000s, the slope of these lines starts to turn up. By the year 2015, more than 60% of top quintile companies are still earning superior returns on equity four or five years later. In other words, the best companies' returns are not fading at anywhere near the rate that they used to in the 1990s or the early 2000s. Your typical value investor has a behavioral bias to look selectively at laggards and not overestimate the sustainability of high profit margins. But given the data that makes up these charts, that bias is wrong. Apparently, with increasing force in the 21st century, the top companies in the stock market are able to continue compounding returns on capital at above normal rates, and competition does not seem to be making much of an impact. The whole concept of fading the extremes, and therefore book value as the most important variable, is thrown on its head. Moreover, a behavioral bias towards looking at cheap companies that have lagged the market by varying degrees and embed lower return expectations is counterproductive. So why is this happening? And why did it start happening in the mid 2000s? 
was there were rule change, like in basketball, that initiated a variety of unforeseeable consequences. What is the virus plaguing value? Why are low book value multiple stocks continuing to lag? Why are corporate returns not fading? Why is contrarianism not working? Why are value stocks in the 100th percentile of valuation versus growth? The virus plaguing value isn't really a virus. It's that we are advancing out of the industrial age and into the digital age, and measuring value in the digital age is different. Low book to market worked in the industrial age and was still the relevant paradigm to describe most businesses in the 1990s. In the digital age, we are gradually replacing the physical with the digital, from communications to consumption to industrial design to finance. In our view, this has specifically been catalyzed by broad penetration of connected and highly functional digital devices like smartphones. This reached critical mass not in the year 2000, but a few years after, like around 2006. This means consumers and businesses have an astonishing amount of information available to them about prices, products, and availability. Products are designed digitally and supply chains are tightly tuned to in-demand based on precise information transmitted digitally. Tight digital linkages have enabled successful companies to de-verticalize themselves, focusing on product design and marketing while leaving the more capital and labor-intensive manufacturing of key components and final assembly to others. Customer engagement is not limited to store hours or even normal times of the day, and clever entrepreneurs are continuing to find ways to create digital interfaces for everyday necessities and services. As we have entered the digital age and gone deeper into it, with more and more advanced digital devices, physical assets have become less important to business success. It's software and systems that are needed to make physical devices work and connect. And increasingly, digital devices can be substituted for physical assets. The general store and the shopping mall is increasingly a screen. In 2020, we discovered that much of the office experience can be a screen also. The electrons on screen as you are watching this podcast don't have any replacement cost associated with them. This general tendency towards digitization erodes the physical replacement cost definition of value considerably. Hopefully, this all makes intuitive sense. Because when you're used to looking through an industrial age financial lens, some of the key sources of value in the digital age are not so obvious. In the industrial age, decades worth of experience has shown that physical scale, distinctive brands, strong product distribution, and attractive locations lead to competitive advantages and more valuable stocks. These same concepts hold true in the digital age, but they manifest in different ways. We have identified three key business concepts that superior digital age businesses tend to possess and which lead to durable profitability and customer relationships. These are intangible assets, such as brands, patents, and other forms of know-how, interoperability, which is also known as the lock-in effect, and liquidity-driven marketplaces. None of these concepts are unique to the digital age, but they show up much more often and in more powerfully than in the past. The most successful companies in the digital age harness these forces to create monopoly-like profits and market positions, leading to very low fade rates. The liquidity-driven marketplace concept is as old as the stock market itself. Buyers could expect to find sellers, and sellers could expect to find buyers in the same location, such as the New York Stock Exchange for stocks, 
or the Chicago Mercantile Exchange for commodities and financial contracts. For the buying and selling of ordinary goods, location and distribution mattered more. Now, that's no longer very true. We are no longer bounded by location, the time of the day, or other physical constraints. Shopping, searching, socializing, and communication have become standardized on the platforms where there is the greatest liquidity between buyers and sellers. The liquidity-driven effect explains the success and scalability of entertainment services such as Netflix or transportation platforms such as Uber. The important point from a competitive analysis perspective is that once liquidity becomes established at a certain venue, it becomes very difficult to compete with. We will find out in the course of time just how durable some of these digital liquidity-driven marketplaces are. Interoperability is another old-school business concept that has taken on new scale in the digital age. The old razors and blades approach to pushing customer loyalty is a form of interoperability. With the rise of operating system software, business software, digital platforms such as smartphone apps, and connected ecosystems of apps, the interoperability concept scales far beyond the bathroom. With interoperability a near constant presence in our digitally driven lives, monopoly rents have accrued to the companies that can capitalize on this reality. Intangible assets such as brands, patents, and technological know-how are well understood to be of greater importance in the modern world. The average S&P 500 company spends twice as much R&D as a percentage of sales as 25 years ago. They would not do this if there were not compelling business reasons to spend so much more money. Ironically, the accounting profession remains rather stuck in the past and fails to recognize cumulative R&D as a balance sheet asset. This accounting distortion just further magnifies the challenge of using book value as the most critical evidence of an attractive stock market price. The world of quantitative and passive investing would love it if there was a new and improved single variable that would indicate the presence or absence of value, but I'm afraid our work shows this just isn't realistic. We can look for the liquidity-driven marketplace effect, for interoperability, and for huge moats of cumulative R&D as likely indicators that digital age value drivers are present. It's much harder to stay where on a financial statement these would reside. Let's go back to my big question. Why has the fade rate for business returns on capital changed? And why has that happened so decisively since 2006? You probably know the answer if you've made it this far. The importance of intangibles, the barriers to competition that these create, the amount of interoperability that is a feature of the digital age, and the liquidity-driven effect. When successful businesses are able to capture these, their success compounds and competitive pressure fades. The ubiquitous nature of digital and connected devices opened this floodgate wide. The value investor's behavioral bias to fade outsized success and identify laggards is much less likely to be productive. And the low book to market value factor, that looks hopelessly antiquated as a predictor of future returns, as antiquated as shopping malls and newspapers and NBA big business. <music>